Welcome to N20XX. This series takes the listener, year by year, into the future. From 2040 to 2195. If you like emerging tech, ecotech, futurism, permaculture, apocalyptic survival scenarios, and disruptive science, sit back and enjoy short stories that showcase my research into how the future may play out. Florence never lived anywhere but Hayward, Idaho. At 39, she sits at her kitchen table sipping coffee, deciding to once again forego putting any makeup on. The kids' footsteps pound the floor in the other room. In high school, she was the tough girl, and that persona has stayed with her, even though she's more like a mama bear now. Still getting used to short hair, she continually pushes it behind her ears. Just keep going like everything's normal. Do it for the kids. Do the new routine like it's the old routine. Just do the next thing. The raging storm of change won't wipe her from the face of the earth if she just does the next thing. Goggles says, your dry cleaning is here. Deliveries are here. Florence gets up and walks through the living room. Her two teens play VR. Both stand, wearing headsets and moving like expert mimes. It's uncanny how Jed perfectly mimics climbing a ladder, and Wilson dips and swims like a fish. Do they ever think of Nell? Do they talk about her? She opens the front door to the waiting robot that scans her face, and then hands her three uniforms on hangers under plastic. The robot says, here's your dry cleaning. She takes the clothes. The robot lowers one hand while raising a package in the other. This is for Wilson and Jed. She hangs her uniforms on a closet doorknob. Hold on a second. She takes the package, shuts the door, and calls out, guys, can you hear me? You have a package? The cardboard box is from their father. Running her fingernail across the tape, she opens it to smaller boxes inside covered with pictures of glasses. Your everyday AR glasses. Don't miss a thing. She sets the box on the coffee table between the kids and takes her uniforms back to her room. Her figure in the hall mirror causes her to pause. 50 pounds slimmer, she looks the way she did before having Nell. They call it the wartime diet. Lots of people are losing weight without trying. She's noticed it around town. Everyone's clothes flap in the wind. Wearing her uniform, she rides in her dad's Bronco down winding mountain roads. A cheerful voice on NPR says, the problem with the time we live in isn't rapid change, it's reactionary change. If the media attack happened 10 years ago, afterward, we'd return to normal. But now, the media attack caused a robot revolution. Big events set off other big events. When she parks outside the station, two of the standalones leave through the new garage door. They step down on wheel feet and roll toward the road. They move awkwardly. It's embarrassing. Sure, they're taller and bulkier than most standalones, but how are people supposed to take them seriously when they don't move with animal grace? She climbs out of the Bronco and heads to the station, mountains and trees stand behind a one-story building. Ten officers worked at this station. Her father was chief of police before he and the other nine got pulled under. She was an unemployed single mom when the new mayor called her asking her to take her father's place. Just do the next thing. Now she's the only cop for miles around. Just do what is put before you. Do it for the kids. Her father isn't going to come back. Nell won't come back. Jed and Wilson need her. They have their whole lives ahead. In the front office, she calls out, Mercer. He calls out, I'm back here. She walks down the hall where a delivery bot stacks boxes. Inside a dimly lit room, Mercer leans over a tangled mess of machinery. 
Was he wearing the same jeans and sweater yesterday? Did he sleep in his clothes? He fiddles with a large machine in the center of the room. She walks closer. What is it? It looks like an upside-down spider-like robot. Arms come out of a base and curl around. Mercer nervously puts tools in a tray. It's called a rig. Have you heard of it? He smells like machine oil. Florin says, no. He straightens up, turning his round face to her. Rigs allow you to remote control a standalone. Are you ready to get inside it? She steps back arching her eyebrows. I'm not sure if I'm Mercer says, what's that? She says, well walk me through it. He helps her step on parts of the machine to climb up to the seat. This thing is safer to be in than that death trap of a car you have. She politely laughs. It looks like it's designed to tear me apart. He guides her foot onto a plate and straps it on. Now that she's becoming part of his project, he seems more comfortable with her. When you strap yourself in, you have to do it in order. See that poster on the wall? That has a list of the steps. She says, can I lower the headset? He says, go ahead. The virtual scene lights up and she can watch 20 windows. These are what each of the police bots is seeing? Mercer tightens her waist belt. That's right. I'm going to need to bring your crouch belt around and attach it to the front. Are you okay with that? She relaxes. Go ahead. It takes him a minute to attach the belt. Ready to take control? Under the headset, she smirks. I guess. He walks over to a desk under a large monitor showing multiple windows. The eye tracker knows exactly where you look. Pick one out by looking at a window and saying control. I suggest you pick one that's far from any people and cars. C05 looks like a good option. She says, yeah, okay. Biotic, control. The system AI says, relax while we sync positions. On desk monitors, Mercer can see 3D representations of all the auto police. C05 slows to a standstill. All the appendages of the rig move at once, moving Florence into a standing position. She protests. Ah. Mercer says, you okay? Through a clenched jaw, she says, yep. Okay, I can see and hear the roadside. She moves her head left and right. Am I in control? Mercer says, yes. Try walking. She moves her left leg and then her right. The arms of the rig move with her. The rig tilts her back and forth. It's hard to move sometimes. Mercer says, it won't let you move in ways that'll make the robot fall over. You'll need to practice. I suggest you practice a lot. You move the robot, but sometimes the robot will move you. You need to learn to go along with it. Gracie walks along a two-lane highway, a smile on her face. Some think she's blind, her eyes dart around fitfully, but she sees well. In her fifties, her boobs hang low under layers of tattered t-shirts. Her legs are rock hard. She says, are you my new friend? What's your name? Are you new or were you here last year? Off to her left, what used to be farmland is now burgeoning wilderness. Railroad tracks hug the road on her right. Mountains stand about tree lines in every direction. A red truck drives by and honks, but she doesn't react. Her eyes scan the ground. I told you not to bother me about bloody vomit. I could always wait until you're asleep and cut your throat. No, you won't ever cut my throat. She walks into Hayward, Idaho, which had a population of roughly 2,000 before the attack. After, when the military inspected all the buildings they counted 1,100. A glint of light in the dirt catches her eye, and she picks up a dime and two pennies, grinning like a child. The coins go in her front pocket with the rest. In Rusty's diner, Biotic installed the same kind of automated kitchen as fast food kitchens get. 
Rusty's menu never changes, and the ingredients are basic. Fancy kitchens get fitted with robots that can do more things to a greater variety of food and can handle daily menu changes. Ten years from now, Rusty's Diner will still serve eggs in the morning, burgers in the afternoon, and steak in the evening. When customers sit in a booth, menus appear on the table, and they can tap on what they want. A noosh robot standalone rolls out of the kitchen, most of its weight in its base. Whenever it gets in a jam, which is often, a remote pilot at Biotic can take over. The robot also busses dishes and cleans. It brings out trays of food and serves them to two guys. One old guy wearing a John Deere hat holds up a slice of near bread. When are we going to get food back like it was before? The other guy, with large teeth, nods. Yeah, I don't think that'll ever happen. John Deere looks out the window. See her? Gracie walks on the other side of Main Street. Large teeth says, yeah. John Deere says, she's my age. I've seen her here my whole life. We call her the coin lady cause she goes around finding lost change. Large teeth says, no. John Deere says, seriously. Have spare change? If you give her your pocket change it makes her day. You'll never see anyone happier. It's like her IRL game. In the next booth, two dudes have botched bleached blonde hair with roots growing out. Both look too old for their party life outfits. They overhear the conversation and turn to watch Gracie, exchanging questioning glances and nods. Sliding out of their booth, they head out the door. The coin lady is already on the next block. Vani and Mikulik walk a few stores down. Mikulik, the larger one, says, these are some poor bitches around here, but if she collects coins all her life, she could be the richest one in town. Vani says, you think she's slow? Mikulik says, you mean retarded? Don't be so politically correct. Don't get all woke on me. Puke. Vani says, I wasn't trying to be politically correct, Mick, I swear. It's just that two of your kids are, you know, retarded, so. Mick turns hazel red and veins on his forehead stand out. Oh fuck, Von. Von says, sorry Mick. Mick says, anyway, dumb is easy. I think we should follow her in the car. Von says, got it. He gets into a snub-nosed sedan. Mick pulls the sidewalk charge plug out before getting in on the driver's side. He sits for a minute before Von says, what do we do now? Mick says, we wait until she's out of sight, then we catch up. Von says, don't look Mick. That robot is a cop. A police bot rolls down the sidewalk, getting closer. Mick says, that's just a walking security camera. Fuck, you can't go around scared all the time. Von's voice hits a whiny pitch. I'm not scared. I thought your wife was arrested by one of those robot cops. Mick's neck muscles tighten as his jaw muscles flex. The robot passes them. The coin lady is out of sight. Mick switches the car to manual, and the steering wheel folds out from the dash panel. He pulls the car forward and turns right. Ahead, she walks between little houses on a one-lane road. They continue to follow her for two more hours. When she walks down the highway, they can stay parked longer before losing sight of her and pulling forward. She picks things up many times. Hopefully, it's all change. Von says, don't look now. That robot cop is back. He's onto us. Mick says, you fart face, that's a different robot. It can't stop us for speeding, we aren't even driving. Just wait for it to pass. Pretend to be on your foldable if it makes you feel better. The robot passes without incident. They follow the lady down a single-lane mountain road under trees. Both fidget more. Mick's leg shakes and Von snorts furtively. When she disappears around a turn they pull forward. Von says, you passed her. Mick breaks. 
He's which is the reverse. Bond says, there's another road. Mick says, that's not a road. Bond says, yes it is. It's just not driven on much. Mick drives over a shallow ditch and tall grass onto twin paths made by cars. There she is. Far up ahead the lady walks uphill on one of the wheel paths. Is it her house up there? I don't think we should drive up there. He drives the car in reverse back to the one-lane road and parks it in the ditch. They get out and walk up the two-path road. Vaughn makes a panting sound. Did we lose her again? Mick says, stop making that noise. Calm the fuck down. They approach a house so run down and patched up, they can't tell if it's lived in or not. The road continues past the house. Vaughn whispers, do you think she lives there? Mick says nothing as they get nearer to the house. Vaughn says, Mick. Mick says, shut up, keep walking. We'll see if she kept going up the hill. Don't look at the house. Vaughn says, this reminds me of that time you lost your pants outside the bar and we had to walk. Mick coughs as if he's been socked in the chest. Holy fuck, Vaughn. How the hell? Oh, never mind. Vaughn starts to speak but presses his lips tight. A few minutes after they pass the house, they catch sight of her again continuing up the road. Florence is alone in the station. The new night officer won't start until next week. No one has answered the ad for the 911 operator receptionist. At first, she only used the rig for 30 minutes at a time. Muscles she never knew she had ached at the end of the day. She spent more time overwatching the robots from the desk. Now she prefers to spend most of her shift in the rig. It makes her feel like she's out there, switching robots to patrol the town and surrounding area. Vandalism is a problem. Wanderers come through all the time. She can't just add a robot to follow every stranger who comes through town. That's just risking a lawsuit. Town folks say they can tell when it's her in a robot. It moves like you. I can totally tell it's you. She can use her legs to make robots walk, but it's easier to use a joystick by her left thumb to auto-walk. She's still learning group control. She can tag many robots to climb into a cop car, as an example. She can set many robots to work together putting out a fire or searching an area. The robots run changing routes of patrol. They fulfill 95% of the job. They can chase down a suspect and detain them on their own. They only need her to mark someone for arrest. And, no surprise, the robots get stuck. Someone's been setting traps for them, and she has yet to find the culprit, though they're probably one of the bored kids in town. After her cop bots put out a house fire, a firefighter from the nearest city calls. Biotic hasn't come out with firefighter bots yet. We're on a waiting list. It sucks cause fires are still a huge problem all around the country. She still finds suicides that are most likely media attack related. For some reason, people have taken to hanging themselves off the 5th street overpass which is pretty sad. The robots get them down quickly. They do this creepy thing where they can work like ants, climbing each other and working in sync. While in a robot, walking the streets around the school, she answers a call. Hayward Police. A rumbling woman's voice says, Miss, this is Mrs. Jenkins on Bricks Road. Florence says, Mrs. Jenkins, hi, this is Florence, Derek's daughter. Mrs. Jenkins says, is that you? I didn't know you were helping your daddy out. Now listen, you know Gracie that odd girl who lives up the road from me? Florence says, I know who you're talking about. Mrs. Jenkins says, she passed my house, and not a minute later two strange men passed my house following after her. Florence logs off from the robot. Returning to the main VR control center, she finds the nearest standalones in the Jenkins area. How long ago was that? Mrs. Jenkins says, a few minutes ago. 
They made my dogs go crazy. Do you hear my dogs barking? Florin says, yes, we'll send some standalones right away. Mrs. Jenkins, some robots are going to pass your house. Don't be alarmed. They're part of the police force. They may look strange, but they're new equipment used by the police. Mrs. Jenkins says, what? What? Honey, you're not making any sense. Florin says, we'll look into it right away. Goodbye Mrs. Jenkins. Her heart beats faster as she tags five robots to head to Gracie's house. Using their wheels, they can safely travel at 35 miles per hour. She sends them at 40 miles per hour. B08 is already on Bricks Road. When she sees the snub-nosed sedan in the ditch, she tags B08 to guard it. She slows the other four bots to 30 when they start up the two-path road. The spokes in the wheels catch grass blades. She says, biotic, call Gracie Winters. The phone rings. A sleepy voice answers. Hello? Florence says, Gracie this is Florence. I talked to you from the robots, remember? Gracie says, I remember. Florence says, where are you, Gracie? Are you with anyone? Gracie says, I just got home. Mama is asleep in the other room. Do you want me to wake her? Florence says, I need you to lock your front door. Can you do that? Gracie says, we don't have a lock. We took it off and put it on the chicken coop. The front bot nears Gracie's house. Florence can see it through the camera. Two men with fake blonde hair look back from the porch. All four bots deed toward the house. Panting, with trembling hands, Florence tags each man for arrest. Both men leap off the porch and run. Gracie says, hello? Are you there? Florence says, I have to go. Don't let any intruders in your home. Gracie says, I'll get the shotgun. Should I use it the way mama told me to? Florence says, yes. The men run up a trail, and the bots close the distance behind them. The men pass over a high spot and run downward. When the robots go over the apex, a sudden drop causes all five to fly forward and tumble into the bushes. Florence screams. But the robots get to their feet and resume the chase. They roll down the path on a steep hill. The path goes around some trees the men disappear behind. Bond separates from Mick and runs to the left. Before he knows what happens, he runs over an old well and falls in. When the robots take the path around the trees they only see one man ahead. The two bots tag to arrest the slimmer one, slow to search the area. Florence watches from the front robot chasing the heavier man. He runs a lot faster than it looks like he can run. The rocky, irregular path slows the robots. The path ascends, descends, ascends, then descends. It twists around trees. She calls ten more robots to the area. It'll take time for them to arrive, but she's pretty sure she'll need a search party. Would her dad have made that choice? The path leads to an open field. Ahead, the man runs toward many multi-story buildings. Florence says, what the hell is this? The robots can pick up speed in the field, and though the man had been getting away, the robots now get closer. The buildings all look new. What are they? She's never heard of a resort out here. They don't look like grow houses. They look like a hotel or hospital buildings. The man trips and disappears into the tall grass. He climbs to his feet, holding a revolver, but the robots bear down on him. She takes the view of the robot in the back. The front robot comes up behind the man. It runs into his back and they both fall forward. Cuffs on both of the robot's arms restrain the arms of the man. The robot shakes the man's arm until he drops the gun. She didn't do that, the robot knew to do that on its own. The robot says, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. Florence takes control of the back robot. 
Biotic AI says, relax while we sync your position to the robots. Her arms and legs are moved by the rig arms, and she's tilted forward. She feels like she's inside the robot, and she walks toward the buildings. Two window panes are shattered. The only car in the parking lot is run up on a sidewalk. She can see seven high rises. Nice, red rock paths run all over the place. A sheet caught on tree branches whips in the wind. Rounding the nearest building, she sees an entrance. A sign says, Reprieve Hospice. There's a hospice out here? Why has she never heard of this? Could she have gotten a job here the whole time she was unemployed? The automatic doors on the entrance open and shut over and over again. A body lies face down by the main walk. Another body slumps over in a wheelchair just inside the entrance. She feels like she shouldn't be here, but she's a cop now. She should be here. She says, biotic, show me thermal. The scene gains use of orange to blue. Both bodies are the same temperature as the surrounding area. She returns to the field to handle the arrest of the heavier man. More robots arrive. With 10 robots searching the area for a couple of days, the second man doesn't turn up. She brings a team of robots to the hospice in the middle of nowhere. The power doors all respond to emergency open signals from the robots. Through the floors of all the buildings, the robots search for warm bodies. She feels nervous. Could she ever get in trouble for doing this? She hasn't even gone to police school. In the staff residential building, she finds six bodies, in advanced stages of decay. Two hung themselves, one slit his wrists, and the others lie over the covers in beds with no signs of cause of death. In inpatient care buildings, most of the floors are vacant, but she finds deceased patients in the central building. Most are so old, did they die of natural causes or for neglect? Their heat signatures all match the room temperatures. One body lies halfway down a hallway having made a trail of fluids from one of the rooms. She's in a robot on the third floor trying to gain access to a computer when B09 says, signs of life detected. She logs off B14 and enters B09. Standing in a room, she sees a withered form on the hospital bed. The body is warmer than the rest of the room. Switching on a headlamp, she steps forward. The body looks like a tree root, hard, twisted, and shrunken. His skeleton shows, bony shoulders and the skull defining the face. His white afro fans out in all directions. She takes a step back when the eyelids quiver and the eyebrows furrow. She slumps, causing the robot to slump. Near death is so much scarier than deceased. Biotic, open the med kit. A door springs open on the robot's lower front. She pulls out a canvas bag, quivering so much, the robot's arms shake. She pours the contents out on the bed, finds a water pouch, and twists the straw lid onto the top. Face it, she's not going to save this man. She hasn't even had CPR training. At first, when she places the straw into the dried-out mouth and squirts a couple of times, nothing happens. She'll never fully believe she saw what she sees next. The body heaves in unnatural movements. All of the skin cracks and falls away in flakes, all at once. Under that, bloodless flesh undulates. She'd have jumped back. The rig and the robot gyros stop her from falling. The old black man takes a raspy, cavernous breath. She squeezes the remaining liquid into his mouth. She searches online how to revive a malnourished patient. In the rig, she explores the hospice, finding water and nutrient drips. They fit in plastic receptacles already injected into his arm. He looks so withered away, veins pulsing under shiny skin. His eyes sunk into eye sockets never open. She'd call an ambulance, but the nearest hospital is 10 miles away and still understaffed and overbooked to a breaking point. 
She uses the robot's PA. Hello? Can you open your eyes? The man doesn't respond. The water pouch is almost gone. That can't be. Did he suck the water out of the pouch with his arm? Is that possible? It happened so it must be possible. The next day, she and her sons arrive in person at the hospice, in the Bronco. They load the man on a stretcher, wheel him out to the parking lot, and load him in the car. However Jed and Wilson feel about helping their mom bring home an old man at the edge of death, they say little about it. Jed does ask, do we know him? Florence acts like this is all normal. No, but we should try to help everyone. Everyone who is nice. They carry him to Nell's room and place him in her bed. Her sons return to VR worlds in the living room, while she hooks him up to drip lines. He looks better than yesterday. Surely, he looks better. His posture has relaxed and filled out a bit. She pulls a chair up to the bed and sits. Oh, how she hopes he lives. Nell and her father were already gone when she found out about them. If she can stop one from being lost, even if he's in his 60s. She shouldn't hope too much. She did find him in a place for the terminally ill, after all. The grandfather clock in the living room chimes midnight. A cuckoo darts out of the cuckoo clock 12 times. Moonlight highlight stains on curtains. Gracie pulls a man's hunting jacket over her nightgown and lifts two mason jars off the table, both filled with coins. The screen door slams behind her when she steps out. She takes her time crossing the yard and starting down a path behind the defunct bee box. Only she can follow the path in the dark as it twists and winds over roots, stones, and branches. A few steps from the old well, she kneels and pushes the jars on the ground as she crawls, feeling her way forward. Way down at the bottom of the well, Von hears a scraping. Both his splintered shin bones stick out through the torn pants. Help. For God's sake help. I'm dying down here. Oh God. I can't feel my lower half. From high above the childish voice calls down. Are you my new friend? What's your name mister? He bangs his head on a stone as he yells again. Go get somebody else. Bring them here. The voice seems too high to be a grown woman's. How long have you been down there? Have you met the others yet? If you tell me your name, I can introduce you to the others. Just look around. They're all there with you. It feels like hundreds of BBs hit him. The small objects break the skin on the top of his head and punch his skin through his jacket. In the dark, he feels one of the objects bounce into his hand. It's a coin. Coins rain down on him. The rain comes in two waves. Then silence returns. He wipes blood from his forehead. Are you there? Come back. Don't you leave me. But silence waits when he finishes. He sobs, pounding his fist on change, spare change that fills the bottom of the well. Thank you for listening. My landing page is solomeshan.com. There you can find the companion website to this podcast that includes a timeline and illustrations.